The section before us today, I just read the whole of John chapter 1, but the section before us today, John 1, 35 to 51, seems at first glance to be somewhat uneventful and insignificant. The most significant verse on the face of it seems to be John chapter 1 and verse 51, where Nathaniel, Jesus says to Nathaniel that he will see heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Whatever it is that that means, it seems important. In contrast to the rest of the passage, which frankly at first glance can seem somewhat unimportant upon a superficial reading of it. Basically, some people start to follow Jesus. However, we'll see today that this passage is no exception to what 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says. That all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. The main idea of today's sermon is this. That the early encounters of these men that we read about here in John chapter 1. The early encounters of these men with Jesus are paradigmatic of all believers early encounters with Jesus. In other words, all believers have early encounters with Jesus that are like the early encounters that these men here in John chapter 1 have with Jesus. I'm going to expand on that idea as we go. And we're going to look at three points together as we unfold the meaning and the significance of this passage this morning. The relationship of John's calling stories to the calling stories of the Synoptic Gospels. The early encounters of these men with Jesus. And then the later experiences of these men with Jesus. That's the three things we're going to do this morning. So let's begin with the relationship of John's calling stories to the calling stories of the Synoptic Gospels. First, let me define the term that I'm using. When I say the synoptic gospels, what does synoptic mean? It's a compound word with the prefix syn, S-Y-N, and then optic. Alright, so optic, if we had to guess, we know what that refers to, right? We have optometrists, we have uh, optical, optic, optics. These are words that we use in English and they all refer to what? The eyes. And the prefix sin means like together or with. And so synoptic means seeing with or seeing together. What you find if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that they each have their own distinctiveness. But you are definitely going to see a similarity between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John's going to be really different. And so synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John is often considered as being somewhat distinct from those three, and those three see together. So, we're going to look at the relationship of John's calling stories to the calling stories of the Synoptic Gospels. And we're going to come to the substance of that in a minute, but let me make one more side note here. Nathaniel, who we read about here in John chapter 1, is probably the same person who is called Bartholomew in the Synoptic Gospels. This is likely for two reasons. Leon Morris points out that Bartholomew is actually not a proper name. It just means some son of someone. 
Bar is the Aramaic word for sun, which corresponds to the Hebrew ben. And so, just as Peter is in another place called Simon Bar Jonah, Bartholomew, I suppose, if we extrapolate, means the son of Tholomew. His inclusion... So that's the first reason. Bartholomew just means the son of somebody. Which was probably like a nickname, right? Like if you called someone the son of Peter, and that was just the way people referred to him, the son of Peter. It's not actually his name. It's just the way you refer to him. The second reason that Nathaniel uh, is... Well, that doesn't actually indicate then that Nathaniel's Bartholomew. But his inclusion here among other apostles implies that he is likely an apostle also. And so if he is, then which one would he be? And it makes sense that it's most likely this nameless one, the son of whoever. Well, what's, what's the son of whoever's name? Probably Nathaniel. And then secondly, in the other lists of the apostles in the synoptics, Bartholomew is always listed next to Philip. And here also they appear together. It's Philip and Nathaniel. So it's not an open and shut case, and frankly not much hangs on it. But just as we go, I thought it's worth noting as we try to understand who these people are. So now, coming to the substance of this first point, the relationship between John's calling stories to the calling stories of the Synoptic Gospels. Listen as I read a few verses, and I just read to you John chapter 1, so you should have that fairly fresh in your mind. Listen to a few verses from the other Gospels, and you're going to note some differences. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a, sea, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Mark 2, 13 and 14. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he, called, he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And then Luke 5, 1 to 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And then just a couple more verses in Luke chapter 5, 27 and 28. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. All right. So you can see that there's some differences. You can see, first of all, that there's a little bit of differences between the synoptics and, um, or sorry, within the synoptics between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But basically, you can resolve those pretty easily because you can see that they're just going into different levels of detail. And so in Luke, Jesus gets in the boat with Peter and this whole event happens. Whereas in Mark, he just says to him, come follow me. Obviously, Luke is just going into greater detail. But what is the reason for the differing accounts between the synoptics and John, which are very different? So there's this no, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In John, what you see is that... Andrew goes and finds Peter and says, we have found the Messiah. And then he brought him to Jesus. So what's up with this? Or this is this a contradiction? What's going on here with this? Well, it's resolved like this. And this is why I read about Levi too. Haven't you ever wondered why these guys just immediately leave what they're doing and go follow Jesus? Hasn't that question ever crossed your mind? And I just heard someone say effectual calling, and that's actually not the correct answer. It's simple. It's really simple. Jesus was not unknown to them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are telling the stories where Jesus calls them formally to enter into a formal relationship of discipleship with Him, where they become, uh, in an official way, His Disciples and soon to be apostles. And so, what Matthew, Mark, and Luke are doing are telling that story of when they officially became Jesus' disciples. John is telling the story of when they first met Jesus. That's it. Before this, they never had met him. And so, what we see is that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're reading about. A formal call to follow him sort of in an official capacity. And in John, we're reading about the first time that they met Jesus. It's as simple as that. So let's talk now, moving to our second point, about the early encounters of these men with Jesus. In John chapter 1, 35 to 51, we recognize that they perceived something true of who Jesus was. But as we'll go on to see, it's not as if they were wrong in what they predicated of Jesus, but that they didn't have a full understanding, even of the things that they predicated of Jesus. They recognize Him here in this passage as the Lamb of God, as a rabbi, as the Messiah, as Him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. As the Son of God, as the King of Israel. And then Jesus reveals to them 
that he is Jacob's ladder. These are all the things that are predicated of Jesus in John 1, 35 to 51. They're all correct. None of these things are untrue about Jesus. But as we'll unfold in a few moments, these guys didn't understand the fullness of what these things meant. Let's look here at these early encounters. The next day again, verse 35, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. You'll remember that Jesus said that the Messiah, or pardon me, the Lamb of God, rather, was already among them. Verse 26. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. And then the next day he identifies Jesus, verse 29, and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, he's identifying here. This is him. This is the Lamb of God. These two guys perceive then that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And so they go to find out more about him. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So two things here. One is they obviously perceive that he's some kind of teacher, which again is true. Jesus is a teacher. But did they understand the fullness of what was meant by the statement of John that Jesus is the Lamb of God? Did they understand the, the fullness, even in calling Him Rabbi, of what it meant that Jesus was a teacher? Likely not. Likely not. But they're laying hold of something true about Jesus. And they want to find out more. That's why Jesus turns to them and says, what are you seeking? If you were walking down the road and you saw two people behind you and you turn a corner and they turn a corner and you turn another corner and they turn, you might turn around and say, what are you seeking? Right? And then they, and then they say, they say, where are you staying? Which isn't actually really an answer, is it? To the question, what are you seeking? Where are you staying? So maybe they just don't really fully know what to do with this fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that Jesus is a rabbi. But they want to know more. They want to find out more. Their hearts are being drawn. Effectual calling. Their hearts are being drawn to Jesus. And so they're coming to Jesus, knowing something of who He is, something true even of who He is, but not laying hold of the fullness yet of who He is. So it's like they want an extended conversation with Jesus. It's like they're saying, we can't answer so quickly what it is that we're seeking. We need to sit down and talk with you about what it is that we're seeking. And so Jesus says, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day. For it was about the 10th hour, which is about 4 p.m. And darkness, as I understand, was about the same time as darkness here in Barbados. So basically they arrive, they have a conversation for a few hours, and now it's dark. And so then they stay um, with him for the rest of the day. They have obviously a conversation that can't be had in passing on the road. 
That's what they're seeking. To know Jesus. They're coming to Jesus in faith. Not in a mature, robust, developed faith. But they believe that this is the Lamb of God. And they understand that He is a teacher. And that they need to learn from Him. And learn of Him. And so they want to talk more with Him. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now incidentally, the other one is not named, is never named. Most likely the author of the Gospel, John himself. One of the two, verse 40, who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. When it says here, he first found his own brother Simon, in verse 41, probably what that means is, perhaps he went and found him before they even went following Jesus. So John says, Behold, there's the Lamb of God. Andrew goes and finds Peter, and then Andrew, Peter, and John go and follow Jesus and say, Where are you staying? That's probably the best way to read that section. In any case, again, Andrew goes to Peter and says, We have found the Messiah. So Andrew understands that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter, by Andrew's declaration, comes to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Did they understand accurately, clearly, fully what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah? No. That's evident as we read through the gospel accounts. They didn't have a proper understanding even of what that meant. But they laid hold of something true. That Jesus was the anointed one. The Christ. The Messiah. The promised one. Again, coming to verse 45. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. They understood that this is the one they've been waiting for. They didn't understand fully what that meant, what all of the implications of that were, but they understood something true, something accurate, that this is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. This is the Messiah. And again, they're laying hold of Him by faith. It's not a mature faith. It's not a robust and developed faith. It's not a thoroughly informed faith. But it's laying hold of what they know, what they do know, what they can see, what they can perceive of Jesus. They're taking hold of Him. These men are drawn to Jesus, and these men are coming to Jesus implicitly, though the Scripture doesn't tell us explicitly, by faith. These are not, this is not the coming to Jesus like the coming of the Inquisition to John mentioned earlier in the chapter, where they're basically coming to interrogate Him to grill him, to find out what he's all about and what answer they can give to those who sent them. This is the coming of faith to Jesus. They're laying hold of something. Something true about who Jesus is. And then Nathaniel's declaration in verse 49. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Again, true statements, but did he understand fully what was meant? By those things? Most likely not. 
the nation of Israel is called God's son in Deuteronomy. David, the king, is called God's son throughout the Psalms in a few different places. Perhaps Nathaniel was confessing something like this, that he understood Jesus to be a special person. Perhaps he was confessing his divinity. It's possible. The Trinity is not new to the New Testament. But it's possible that he had some kind of misunderstanding, even of this title, the Son of God. Or some kind of misunderstanding of the King of Israel. Again, Jesus was, remember? Even Pilate wrote, the King of the Jews. And the religious leaders went and said, you should write, this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And it was fitting that that should be up, posted above Jesus' head on the cross, because he was the King of the Jews. But not the way that they expected him to be. Just as he wasn't the same kind of Messiah that they expected him to be. And so these men didn't fully understand, most likely, even the titles that they're using here. Lamb of God, Rabbi, Messiah, Him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, the Son of God, the King of Israel. They don't fully understand even what is meant by these things. And then Jesus tells them something that if I were a betting man, I'd be willing to put money on that they didn't understand. He says in John chapter 1 and verse 51, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. Jesus is clearly alluding back to Jacob's dream in Genesis, where there is a connection point between heaven and earth. And it's by means of that connection point, which in Jacob's dream is a ladder, that Yahweh comes to be with Jacob throughout his journey for his good. By means of which connection point the angels descend to be, to be what they are, ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of Jacob and all those who are to inherit salvation. Jesus is saying here in this passage, I am that connection point between heaven and earth. It's through me that God is with you all your journey through for your good. It is through me that all of the blessings of the new covenant come to you, including ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of you, Nathaniel, and others who are to inherit salvation. I'd be willing to bet that at this juncture, they didn't understand that. What Jesus was saying. I saw a YouTube video recently, the title of which was Ex-Gang Member Pop Lock in Scripture at the House Modesto Church. So, there's this church in Modesto, California called The House and this ex-gang member in this video dances while giving a very superficial sermon to the church there. Dances while giving a very superficial sermon to the church there. Throughout the video, he repeats the name Jesus Christ several times, almost as if it's a mantra. He also exclaims several times, I love you God, or we love you God. 
There's a lot that this brother does not yet know about Christ. For one, that Christ's name is not a mantra. It's not an incantation. For another, that Christ is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, according to the prescriptions of Holy Writ. For another, that His glory He will not share with another. But notice... Notice that I called him this brother. I don't know the state of his heart, of course. But when I watched that video, it seemed to me that that guy has really gotten a hold of something true about Jesus. He's come out of gang life and he wants to shout the name of Jesus over and over. And he wants to exclaim in fact it comes bubbling out of him either spontaneously which i think is most likely or really well scripted and really well acted out i think spontaneously i love you god we love you god this ex gang member pop locking at the house modesto church is a lot like these guys here in john chapter 1 and he's a lot he's a lot more like many of us were at our conversion or like many of us still are than we might be inclined to admit who here is going to claim that they know God exhaustively and thoroughly who here is going to claim that they have no blind spots who here is going to claim that they're not ignorant of anything concerning the divine being and yet we've laid a hold of something true about who God is to us in Christ Jesus. Paul Washer tells a story about a time that he went out for a meal with men who he said were very strict. Strict in their theology, strict in their living, strict in their behavior. And they had sort of this hippie kind of waiter. Paul Washer didn't use that term, but that's kind of the impression I got. He described the guy's long hair, tons of bracelets. Uh, You can listen to his description online. But here's here's kind of a loose transcription of his story from a clip I heard, and I kind of tried to write down some of the salient points. All right, so in paraphrasing Paul Washer here, the waiter walks up and he sees my Bible, and he's like, dude... You've got a Bible. And I said, yeah, I do. And he says, cool. I got one of them. And Paul Washer said, really? He said, he said, yeah, I was seeking and I was seeking for God and I found him. And Paul said, really? You were seeking for him and you found him? Good news. And then Paul says, and I saw those other guys, those strict guys. Those theologians thinking. And they were mad. And their wheels were turning. And they were probably thinking, you weren't seeking for God. No one seeks for God. And after this waiter left the table, Paul says, I looked at those men and I said, God's done something in that young man's life. It's better to have it and not know what to call it. Then know what to call it. 
and not have Some people, like that waiter, like the ex-gang member at the house in Modesto, California, like these men in John chapter 1, and like many of us, and like many people out there, have it and don't know what to call it. They've laid hold of something true about Jesus. And they're holding fast onto what they know. And onto what they see. And onto what they perceive. And they want to shout His name. And they want to exclaim, I love you God. We love you God. All of us Christians were something like these men here in John chapter 1 when we were first converted. And some of us are still in that place, and that's okay. You're taking hold of what you do know. You're taking hold of what you do see. Let's consider now the later experiences of these men with Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 1 and verse 50, You will see greater things than these. Nathaniel's impressed because of this interchange that he has with Jesus, in which Jesus demonstrates a supernatural kind of knowledge. Commentators are divided on exactly what is meant when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, but obviously it's something that Jesus couldn't have known on natural terms. And so Nathaniel's impressed. And that elicits his reaction. And Jesus says, you will see greater things than these. In other words, you will, if you think I'm great because I did that, just wait. Just keep your eyes on me. And you will see greater things than these. If you think you've seen something of my glory now, just keep watching you will see more of my glory throughout the remainder of your life. I'm going to be unfolding more than just this. Think again of the terms used for Jesus here in this passage. Lamb of God, Rabbi, Messiah, Him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Son of God, King of Israel, Jacob's ladder. What did these terms mean to these men by the end of their lives? Jesus was often rebuking his disciples for their lack of understanding, for their lack of perception, as he tried to teach them and explain to them the things of God. We see them learning painfully, slowly throughout the gospel accounts. But learning. Persevering in this faith in Jesus. Having laid hold of something true about Him, but not grasping all the implications of it, all the fullness of it yet. They're persevering in the faith. Growing. Learning. 
What did those terms mean to them by the end of their lives? Especially, especially after Pentecost, we see different men. Men who do understand. Men who, far from being rebuked by Jesus for their lack of understanding, are commissioned by Jesus. Even as we read earlier in the service from Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, to be His witnesses, commissioned with the task of writing Scripture, of being foundation layers, as Ephesians 2 and verse 20 says. By the end of these men's lives, after having been taught by Christ throughout the course of Christ's earthly ministry, having had the Holy Spirit poured out upon them, and His ministry to them, of leading and guiding them into all truth. When these men say, Lamb of God... On their last day, they mean something fuller and richer than they meant when they said Lamb of God on this day that we read about in John chapter 1. And likewise, when they call Jesus a teacher, a prophet, when they record His words in the Sermon on the Mount later, what do they understand of Jesus as a teacher? Then, as opposed to here in John chapter 1, Messiah. What did that term mean to them at the end of their lives? In contrast to what it meant to them here in John chapter 1. You remember, they come to arrest Jesus and Peter pulls out a sword. What did Messiah What did King of Israel mean to Peter that day when they crucified him upside down because he requested not to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus because he counted himself not worthy? What did Messiah mean to Peter that day? What did Messiah mean? What did King of Israel mean to Peter on that day? As opposed to here on this day recorded for us. In John chapter 1. What did it mean to these guys that Jesus was him of whom Moses wrote in the law and also the prophets on their last day? As opposed to here in John chapter 1 when they took those first early steps of faith. It was richer It was fuller. It was sweeter. They never went back on the things they confessed here in John chapter 1. He is still the Lamb of God. He is still the Messiah. He is still the King of Israel. He is still Him of whom the law and the prophets spoke. He is still Jacob's ladder. They never went back on those confessions. But what those confessions meant to them later was richer, fuller, sweeter than what those confessions meant to them on day one. 
And as I said earlier, the early encounters of these men with Jesus are paradigmatic of our early encounters with Jesus. And so their later experiences with Jesus. We come to Jesus like that, like that waiter that Paul Washer talked about. Or like that ex-gang member. Pop lock in while he preaches at the house. We come to Jesus like these guys in John 1. Laying hold of something true about who Jesus is. We, like these disciples, want, as it were, to find out where he's staying so we can learn a little bit more about him. So we can talk to him some more. So we can have a deeper communion with him. So we can get closer to him. We're taking hold of what we do know. Even though there's, even though there's a lot that we don't know yet. And even when we use Christian terms, correct Christian terms, we might not fully get it just yet. We might talk about Jesus in incorrect ways in our early Christian lives. We might talk about how He's the Son of God, but fill out our Trinitarian theology with wrong predications of how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are related to each other. We might not have all our doctrinal T's crossed and our doctrinal I's dotted. But it's better to have it and not know what to call it than to know what to call it and not have it. So we come to Jesus laying hold of what we do know. We want to shout His name. We exclaim, I love you God. We love you God. But just like our early experiences are like the early experiences of these men here in John chapter 1. So as Jesus said to Nathaniel, we see greater things. We go on in our Christian lives to see greater things. God, by His Holy Spirit, teaches us, even by the words of the apostles, These same men who learned and grew, even by their words recorded for us in Scripture, we see greater things, even as they saw greater things. And so even the terms that we embrace on day one, like He's the Christ, He's the Savior, what did that mean to you on day one of your Christian life? And what does it mean to you now? There's that old hymn, says, the longer I serve Him, the sweeter He grows. The longer that I call Jesus Savior, the richer and fuller that term becomes to me. I understand more of what's loaded in to that term, Savior. The longer I call Jesus Messiah or Christ, the more I grasp what that means. The more I study the Scriptures, the more I understand what it means that Jesus is Jacob's ladder. And so on and so forth. The longer I serve Him, the sweeter He grows.
It's the Holy Spirit's ministry to give a greater perception of Christ. We read that in 2 Corinthians 3. Beholding the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces. We are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And this is from the Lord who is Spirit. The Holy Spirit taught these men what it meant that Jesus was the Lamb of God. What it meant that He was a Rabbi, Messiah, Him of whom the Old Testament spoke, the Son of God, the King of Israel, Jacob's ladder. He filled that out for them through the course of their lives. And the Holy Spirit does the same with us. He fills out these things, the meaning of these things to us through the course of our lives. So that the longer we serve Him, the sweeter He grows. To be a Christian is fundamentally to recognize something true of Jesus. And enough of it to cast yourself upon Him as your only hope. To save you. Yet you will perceive Him in a limited way necessarily on day one. And you might perceive Him in an imbalanced way on day one. Focusing more on one aspect of His work than on another. And not even perceiving your need for another aspect of His work. You may even perceive Jesus in an inaccurate way on day one. But to be a Christian is fundamentally to recognize something true of Him and to lay hold of what you do know by faith and to cast your soul on Him. This is what was happening in John 1. These men were perceiving in Jesus something true or perceiving about Jesus something true. And though it's not stated explicitly in the text... Trusting Him. They didn't know everything. They didn't understand the fullness of the meaning of the terms that they were using. They had to grow to know Christ better. And in this way, as I said at the beginning, the early encounters of these men with Jesus are paradigmatic of all believers. Early encounters with Jesus. In other words, all believers have early encounters with Jesus that are like the early encounters with Jesus that are recorded for us here in John 1. Yet these men grew, and so we will grow. Just as Nathaniel, and by extension the rest of these guys, would see greater things. So we, having come with a simple faith in the beginning, will grow. We will see greater things. There is richness, fullness, sweetness in Jesus that we can continually draw from throughout the course of our lives, and never exhaust. There's water from the rock. There's manna, new every day. That we can continually eat, and continually drink, and never get to the bottom of just how great, how rich, how full, how infinitely sweet Jesus is. Is. If you're not a Christian, don't wait until you know everything to come. Just start trusting and start following Jesus as these men did. And trust the Holy Spirit to open your eyes ever increasingly to the glory of Christ throughout the course of your life. 
just come. Just start taking those first steps and just trust that there's going to be sustenance for the journey. And that you're going to learn as you go. That it's going to be a process. If you are a Christian, don't be satisfied with a superficial understanding of who Jesus is. Don't be like, well, I'm a Christian and I just laid hold of what little I know of Him and that's enough for me. You're missing out. As I said, there's a storehouse of glory in Christ. Ready to be seen. Ready to be perceived. Christian, don't even plateau at a reasonably mature understanding of Jesus. Don't even be like, well, I'm not an absolute novice. I've learned a fair bit. I've been in a healthy church for some time now, and I have a pretty good grasp on who Jesus is, and I'm content there. Again, as Jesus said to Nathaniel, should you press on in the faith to know Jesus more and more, you will see even greater things than these that you've seen so far. Seek to know Christ better. He's infinitely rich and sweet. Never stop drawing more and more from His reserve.